0: Joining us, this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Fisheries Pod. And if you're the generous sort, you can support the podcast on Patreon with either a recurring or a one time donation. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, or even face masks on the Teespring store if you're so inclined. So check it out. My name is Anders Halverson, and I have two guests today. Dr. Jennifer Rayner is an assistant professor of natural resource economics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Before moving to academia, she worked for the federal government in various roles. Most recently, she was a research economist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration National Marine Fisheries Service. Welcome to the show, Jennifer.
1: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: And my other guest is Dr. Sarah Medoff, who is an economist at the Cooperative Institute for Marine and Atmospheric Research, which is a NOAA funded research institute at the University of Hawaii. Welcome to the show, Sarah.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So, along with John Lynam, Jennifer and Sarah have just recently published a paper in Science titled Spillover Benefits from the World's Largest Fully Protected MPA. And in brief, that's about the benefits of the Papahana Mokuakea Marine National Monument for tuna and other fishes. So before we get into the specifics of your paper, I personally don't know that much about marine fisheries. So can we talk initially about the marine protected areas and sort of go through a history of those?
1: So the this particular marine protected area was established in 2006 by President G.W. Bush. Um, he was really interested in uh, partially in protecting the native um, uh, Hawaiian cultural sites that are in this location. Of course, we have lots of other benefits to ecosystems that come from that protection too. And then in 2016, President Obama Uh, really expanded this protected area. It almost quadrupled in size at that time. And at that time, he uh, expanded this to about 580,000 square miles, which is about four times the size of California. Wow.
0: And so where in particular is it?
1: Uh, This area is around the Northwest Hawaiian Islands.
0: Okay. So I was looking on the map to get a grasp of this place beforehand. And when you say the Northwest Hawaiian Islands for a mainlander like me, we're not talking about Oahu or Hawaii. We're talking about much further beyond that, right?
1: That's right. We're not talking about the islands that you've probably taken vacations to or gone to the beach. Sort of north and west of of the places you think of Hawaii, the ones you see on a national map, there's a lot of very tiny little islands and atolls that kind of spread up uh, very far distance from the islands you're thinking of. And this protected area is around this large, uh, uninhabited string of small islands.
0: And so we have the exclusive economic zone for any country is about is 200 miles beyond the coast. So is this, did we fill out our exclusive economic zone and go 200 miles in each direction on this?
1: We did. Yep. In this area around these small islands, we went out the full extent of the exclusive economic zone.
0: Wow. So even even in the big Pacific, this is a very big area.
1: This is a really huge area. It's the largest fully no-take or no-fishing zone in the world. Wow.
0: Amazing. Okay. So marine protected areas in general, when did they get started as a, as a concept and what research has been done and what controversies are there around them?
1: Uh, marine protected areas have been sort of a newer management strategy. Um, we've seen these really ramp up in recent years. And you might have seen uh, the kind of big thing in the news now is this 30 by 30 um, idea that's happening internationally, where uh, many countries are committing to protecting 30 percent of their uh, ocean areas. Mostly we're talking about exclusive economic zones here uh, by 2030. Most of these areas have ramped up really just Quite recently. And so we haven't had a ton of really strong signals about the benefits that these uh, areas can create for uh, fishing uh, related industries. Um, We have seen some benefits that have come for very sedentary species, you know, something like lobsters, which aren't moving very much. You'd expect to see a lot of benefits coming for species like that because they're in this protected area. They're not allowed, people aren't allowed to fish there. And then these species can kind of recover, uh, reproduce, and then maybe they, their populations get big enough to spill outside of the protected area. But we haven't really yet seen very strong evidence for very migratory species, ones that maybe are moving over really big areas of the ocean, uh, like tuna, which is what we focus on, uh, and, and whether protecting them in certain places can help benefit their populations as well.
0: Interesting. Okay, so you weren't out there doing the, you weren't sampling yourselves to establish this spillover effect on tuna. How did you go about doing this study?
2: So um, I started off as a research assistant at NOAA in grad school. And through my assistantship, I was able to get access to really uh, detailed data on fishing activity. And so when we started the study, that is what we used. We used the observer data set that's issued by NOAA. So by a federal mandate, there has to be observer coverage on 20 percent of the long line fishing vessels that are targeting big eye tuna. Um, And so that's the data set that we used.
0: Okay, so you are focused on. Just to, let's, let's talk about that for a second. The long line fishing in particular, is there, is there, is there a lot of gill net fishing or other fishing going on around the periphery of this MPA?
1: Most of the fishing is by the Hawaii-based longline line uh, fishing industry. Okay. And in the paper, we actually looked at other long line fleets, international fleets, and the, the fleet that's based out of Hawaii, which is the U.S. flagged a uh, fleet targeting tunas accounts for the majority of fishing in
2: this area.
0: Okay. So has the marine protected area benefited the tuna fishery?
2: Yes, it has benefited the tuna fishery. Um the largest benefit that we observe is for yellowfin tuna and I think the increase in abundance or increase in catch when fishing close to the monument border after the monument was expanded was around 54%.
0: Wow. So what does that mean um, in terms of if I'm a tuna fisherman out of Hawaii, what does that mean for me that I'm catching 54% more fish now than I was?
2: So the way our model is constructed is we basically compare fishing activity close to the monument border with fishing activity further away. And so after the monument expanded, we we estimate that there's a 54% increase in catch close to the monument border as opposed to further away
0: so I'm just going to say that I'm not a great statistician but when I looked at what you guys were dealing with here I if, if I had tried to make sense of it I would have run away in terror because you've got so many confounding variables and it's not a controlled experiment so it's just observational data that you're dealing with and then you've got changes in fisheries technology, changing in fishing pressure in different places. You've got geographical differences. I mean, can we get into the weeds a little bit on how you how you figured out how to approach all of this data?
1: Well, we use several different data sets. So we are really lucky that NOAA collects really amazing data on their fisheries. Um, the, one, the main data set that we're using is collected by people uh, who are actually on the boats watching what fishermen are doing and collecting that data. And the other one is reported by fishermen themselves um so we have a lot of really rich data sets that has a lot of really interesting detail in it and so we're we're dealing with a lot of different uh, problems some of which you've mentioned uh in your intro here on on other things that could be happening at the same time that we might be worried about Um, so we deal with uh, changes in environmental conditions changes in fishing techniques and gear configurations Uh, maybe changes in uh, how efficient captains are at catching fish. People have different skill levels. Uh, We also deal with changes in distribution of fishing over time. Maybe uh, once the protected area comes in place, the really effective captains move closer to the protected area, for example. Um, So I can kind of get into the details on how we're actually doing all that. But these are all things that we've kind of thought about in our model for the reasons you said, the ocean is dynamic, it's complicated. Now we're dealing with human behavior on top of all these environmental issues. Um, And we think we, we developed a model that we believe uh, adequately catches all these different factors and that what we're seeing is really caused by the monument, not all these kind of peripheral uh, Mm -hmm. issues.
0: Well, I mean, okay, we've got time. So can you give me some more detail on the model that you created? Sure.
1: So we're using a model that's called a difference in differences model. And what it's doing is looking at how much catch people are getting close to the monument or the protected area compared to far away uh, before versus after the protected area was put in place. So this is really powerful because what we're doing is saying, imagine you have a before and after study. Like we Mm -hmm. just look at what's happening in and around this protected area before versus after it was put into place. You'd be really worried about a lot of the things that you just mentioned, like the environment has changed, you know, who knows all sorts of things could have changed. Um, And so we're comparing that to other areas that we think have similar environmental conditions um, at the same time before and after this, this was put into place. So
0: So what other areas could you compare it to?
1: We're basically comparing it to areas just a little bit further away, places where um, the Hawaiian-based Long Lion Fleet are also fishing okay. uh, in this area around the Hawaiian Islands, but not close enough that we think that tuna are going to be kind of swimming that far away uh, out of the monument.
0: Got it. Okay.
1: Yep. And so the the power of doing this is we're basically saying, okay, compare changes in catch close to the protected area, to an area further away that had really similar environmental conditions. Um, So this helps us deal with this kind of environmental or oceanic type drivers. And we also look at, we go back, so that's one way to deal with environmental changes. Mm -hmm. A different way we deal with it is we go back in time. So we look at a different period in time further back that had very similar environmental conditions to what was happening at this time that this uh, protected area was expanded. And we try to see in a different year that had the same, you know, ecological conditions, did we see spikes in catch in this region? And we did not before the protected area was put in place. Um, So these these are kind of two ways we're dealing with the environmental piece. Um, We're also dealing with changes in gear by controlling for gear types, how people are setting up their gear, what kind of bait they're using and things like that. Um, And then we're also looking at for an individual person who's fishing for that individual person. Do they do better fishing closer to the protected area versus further away rather than just looking at averages across all sorts of people, which might mean, you know, different things depending on who's fishing where. So we're actually looking at for individual people, um, how their catch rates are changing over space and over time.
0: So you've got controls for time, you've got controls for space, and you've got controls for individual fishermen.
1: Yep, exactly. And then this, the way we're setting up the model framework is also controlling for environmental changes. Wow.
0: Well, okay. So you went after these tuna. Did you go after, did you look at any other species in addition to this?
2: The way this project actually first originated was it was a chapter of my dissertation, and I had focused majority of my research on studying the commercial fishery, the long line fishery here in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. So I had done a paper on modeling market parameters. I had done a paper on looking at the regulatory landscape, and I really wanted to do a paper on some sort of conservation to really kind of just round out my, my whole entire dissertation. So originally, Jen, John and I were all under the assumption that, you know, marine protected areas were really going to benefit smaller, less migratory species. Mm-hmm. So the original idea for the paper was to see some sort of connection between how migratory a species was and the spillover benefits. And so originally we had looked at a set. I think it was about. 10 to 20 species ranked by their size, because that was a proxy for how migratory that they might be. And that we were, a good,
0: That's a good proxy size. Well,
2: proxy. yeah, we, it was just kind of, this was like the beginning of the study. Okay. We were kind of, we were going to, yeah, kind of make it a little bit more grounded. Um, but this was just kind of the initial, initial run. So we had chosen, you know, maybe 10 species um, and ran our models on all of these 10 species. And to our surprise, that's when we saw that the there were spillover benefits for larger um, species like yellowfin tuna and big eye tuna. And that's when we kind of focused on those, those two species in particular. To make sure we were looking at a full set, in addition to looking at yellowfin and big eye tuna, we had also created a group that captured any species caught and another group that captured, captured any species caught but excluded big-eye and yellowfin tuna.
0: So big-eye tuna and yellowfin tuna, what's their range when we're talking about them being migratory, and how does it compare to the size of the marine protected area?
1: I think this is kind of a happy accident about how this protected area was created. Um, so if you can imagine a map in your head, this is a very long, very skinny uh, east to west general uh shape so mm-hmm. it's it's very long from left to right and kind of short from top to bottom and so this actually works out really well for tunas because they have a really strong preference for temperature and so they tend to stay in a kind of small range of latitudes so moving east to west rather than north to south and okay. so the way that this was created you know very long distances east to west across a band of latitudes um provides a really big uh a really good protection of their preferred habitat for tuna that would be not captured if it was like skinny and in tall so to speak so uh tunas most of these yellowfin tunas are actually staying around the hawaiian islands for their lifetime there's been some uh tagging studies that show that many yellowfin tuna that are caught in the region were also born in the region. Um, So it seems like they're quite uh, a bit less migratory than actually we had once thought. And for big eye tuna, we're also seeing uh, the same thing that we once thought, you know, big eye tunas are swimming all over the ocean all the time. um, But actually, many big eye tunas are staying close to the Hawaiian Islands as well. And so we think that there was kind of this uh, unexpected nexus between this shape of where, of how this monument was set up, uh, protecting kind of a very large area, hundreds of miles east to west, uh, in a place where Tunas are actually not moving around as much as they do in other places to begin with.
0: Interesting. So what is the reaction been to this idea. I mean, has this ever been shown before that these migratory species can benefit from a marine protected area?
2: Oh no. The, this is the this is the first study that's really shown that there's this positive spillover effect for these larger, more migratory species.
0: So that's interesting. And there's a lot, there's quite a few marine protected areas around the world at this point.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And what about the reaction among the people who are fishing there in Hawaii?
2: So... You know, whether or not they know if this marine protect, you know, these spillover benefits are helping them, I believe that they would, because a lot of these uh, fishermen, they've been doing this for a very long time. Mm-hmm. There are generations of fishermen before them, um, families of fishermen. So I think that they're well aware of the benefits of fishing closer to the marine protected area. They've probably observed them. Um I think it's. You know, we've been asked in, in different interviews and, uh, media outlets if these results could be replicated for other marine protected areas in other parts of the world. And, you know, it's, I think it comes down to a very case by case basis. Like Jen said, I think the size of this monument mattered. I think the shape, the location, all of these things were contributing factors to the success of Papahanamokuakea, and whether or not these findings will be observed in diff- with different marine protected areas, I think we would have to um, make sure that we are constructing these marine protected areas with a lot of thought, um, and we are putting a lot of planning involved, because anytime you do close part- portions of the fishery, it does impose a cost on the industry, and we want to make sure that these costs are going to be offset by some sort of spillover benefit.
0: Right. But your sense is that the fishermen there in Hawaii who have been doing this for a long time are, I mean, were they opposed to the creation of Papahanao Mokuakea Marine Protected Area in the first place? And have they anecdotally made these observations or has your paper had any influence on that?
2: I I haven't gone and spoke to a lot of the fishermen since the paper Uh has come out. Uh Um, So I don't, I'm not entirely sure what their sentiment is. I know when the monument was being expanded, it, it, you know, was a kind of a political issue because these are people whose livelihoods depend on the fishing industry um, and catching, you know, fish and, and things like that. So um, I think when the monument was expanded, it, it was, maybe did raise some sort of controversy, but Hawaii is also a very uh, cultural place. We have strong ties with, you know, our land and the resources that is provided to us from the ocean. And so I think Papahanamokuakea specifically has like a really huge cultural significance for the Hawaiian people. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think for a lot of Hawaiian people, even though they are fishermen could understand why this monument was being expanded and we're in support of it.
0: Okay. Interesting. So if the countries of the world are trying to put 30% of their marine areas in protected zones by 2030, this gives a lot of room for thought about how to design those, what shape they should be, what area they should cover, things like that. Do you have any sense of the mechanism why this marine protected area was so beneficial to this migratory species?
1: I think that this study is telling us that the shape the size and the location of marine protected areas are probably really important. Again, the shape here being large over, you know, East to West and and smaller North to South. Um, The size is just huge. You know, this is imagine four Californias, you know, left to right uh, through the ocean. Um, And it was also put in a place where yellowfin tuna have known larval nurseries. So this is a place that's actually protecting uh, the reproduction and and kind of growth of of baby tunas. So, I think that this pl- this particular protected area had all the right ingredients to potentially benefit species that are moving over very large distances. Um, I think one reason we haven't seen benefits to migratory species in the past is there has just been some belief that we could never possibly make a protected area big enough uh, to protect the the huge range of these species. Um, and I think what we have found is that that's not true, um, that that we can make these areas big enough, as long as they're put in a, you know, the correct place, um, places where these species are actually spending most of their time, uh, it, can, it can be very beneficial. But just to kind of reiterate what Sarah was saying, we're not saying just go close any big area of the ocean and great, you're going to have benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, this requires really careful planning.
0: So you were zeroing in on one thing that you said there. You were saying that you think it has to do with the fact that this covers a nursery. And and is it also a spawning area for these tuna? So that's that from the perspective of the tuna, that's the primary benefit of the marine protected area.
1: Yeah, from the tuna's perspective, I don't think we know what exactly is creating these benefits. There are, we think, two possibilities. Um, one is that it's protecting places where uh, tuna are reproducing. It's allowing their populations to increase, and then these populations are spilling over outside of the protected area and onto fishing hooks. That's sort of the, the sort of classic way we think spillover benefits happen from protected areas.
0: What's what's the lifespan of a tuna and the and the life cycle? What's the, what? How many years before they're sexually mature, and when do they die?
1: So tunas are getting on hooks pretty quickly. So, um, within a couple of years, usually is the sort of lower end of the age range of when we're catching tunas in this fishery. Um, I think mostly the, the age range of fish that they're catching is somewhere between like one and six to seven years old at the top, uh, at the top end. Um, and so, you know, this this period of time we have like three years after this protected area was put in place, we think would be enough time to start to see a benefit from reproduction. Uh, but we actually think if we looked over a longer time period, we might actually even see larger benefits as more reproduction happens and, right. and fish get bigger, if that is the mechanism. Uh there's a second thing that could be going on, which is this is a great big area where nobody is putting hooks in the water. Right. And so if tunas are smart about avoiding uh, predation, so to speak, uh, maybe they're aggregating in these areas yeah. kind of as they realize that they're not getting caught as frequently. And so we don't have any way with our study to separate these two potential mechanisms. Um, it, but we think that we do see more tunas in this area, you know, given by the effects that we're seeing. And it would be really great for future research to start to parse out exactly what's driving that. Uh, which might help us think about how to construct future marine protected areas and what kinds of places are most beneficial.
0: So just thinking about the study design again, so you don't have any abundance data for tuna within the MPA. Is that right?
1: That's right. So in general for fishing, as, as you know, um, most of our abundance measures are coming from catch per unit effort from fishery dependent data. So these are in a less jargony term, we're we're estimating how many fish we think there are out there based on how many fish people are catching. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are not allowed to fish in this area anymore. So we no longer have that data source. So without being able to go do kind of scientific surveys or some other type of um, sort of research study where you're maybe allowed to be putting hooks in the water or monitoring fish inside this protected area, we can't really separate out these two potential mechanisms.
0: Was there any interest or in doing some scientific fishing within the marine protected area to figure out what the abundance is?
1: That's not something that's been discussed at NOAA while I was there. Um, I think that this fishing, uh, this particular fish species, the big-eye tuna especially, is what the fishing industry is primarily targeting in this region. And so there's a lot of interest in trying to understand how healthy is the stock, You know, how many fish are we able to catch without, you know, hurting sort of sustainability in the fishery. And so I think there's a lot of interest to um better understand the population dynamics of big eye tuna and the Pacific. But the reality is I think it's been really challenging because this highly migratory nature of these species makes it hard to do those kinds of studies. But um I suspect that over time that we're going to learn more and more about kind of the population structures of these species. And I hope that our study will help give some uh further motivation to to kind of dig into those issues closer to the Hawaiian islands.
0: Okay. So what a cool study. Have I missed anything?
1: I mean, one thing that I would add that I think is really important when we're thinking about tunas is mm-hmm. one reason I think this study was so exciting is because tunas are so incredibly economically important across the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, tuna fishing generates something like $40 billion per year wow. uh, in economic activity, and it supports millions of jobs worldwide. And so seeing positive effects on tunas in particular, aside from the fact that we haven't seen protected areas benefiting migratory species before, the fact that it's benefiting these particular subset of species, I think, is really exciting from a, uh, an economics perspective. It's a really huge increase. And and I think given the economic importance of these species, not just globally, but especially in Hawaii, this whole fishing industry is largely targeting these two species. This is what they're hoping to catch. And aside from the kind of cultural importance of these species in the Hawaiian islands, I think all these things make this this a really exciting kind of finding in this particular region.
0: Okay. So what comes next? Do you have a follow-up study?
2: right now no we've thought about too uh if we're measuring the spillover benefit um what we don't know if this spillover benefit if this benefit is af- actually offsetting the cost of closing that marine protected area um and so that's that could be an area for future research
0: yeah so from the what would the cost be if if i'm a tuna fisherman
2: okay so the cost would be quantified with if you looked at the fishing activity that occurred within those monument boundaries, that that expanded area before the expansion occurred, and to see how much catch was taking place in the in that time, um, and then calculate the benefit that's been accumulated since the monument's been expanded, um, and to see if that that cost has been offset.
0: And do you have any sense of that?
2: Um no, we we haven't. We we haven't run those. I think that type of analysis takes uh has to be really well thought out. Um and it has to be really well constructed to make kind of a, a confident estimate of of how much of this cost is being offset by the benefit.
0: Got it. All right. Well, thank you guys very much for coming on. Now we normally end the show with some questions. Um, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but I always like to ask, um, maybe I'll start with you, Sarah. What is your favorite fish?
2: Oh, ahi, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Hawaii. It's ahi, poke.
0: <laughs> all right. Okay. And finally, if there was one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? How about you, Jennifer?
1: Well, for me, I think what I really enjoy about teaching environmental economics and researching environmental economics is to help people see that economics not only causes environmental problems, like many of the environmental problems we have are caused by bad economic incentives or bad bad actors who are who are chasing profits and so on, but economics is also the solution to lots of environmental problems, and so I think it's really cool to to help people see that if it's creating the problem, it's also what's going to fix the problem. And so I think this study for example to me kind of falls under that umbrella where you know we're finding ways that uh sort of careful management practices can help create benefits both for the economy and for uh conservation. And so I think this is the kind of thing that is the thread that goes through all of my work and and that goes through all of the courses that I teach is economics is also the solution.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a good, yeah, very pithy way to sum it up. Okay. Now, if people want to get in touch with either of you, what would be the best way to do that?
2: Probably through my email, smedoff at hawaii.edu. Okay.
0: So I'll put that in the program notes as well, if people want that. And how about you, Jennifer?
1: Uh, Same for me by email, jennifer.raynor at whisk.edu.
0: Okay. Well, thanks again, Jennifer and Sarah, for coming on the show. I hope that you have enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon, or you can buy some awesome fisheries podcast swag on Teespring. I'm Anders Halverson. My guests today have been Sarah Medoff and Jennifer Raynor. And don't forget that economics can be the cause of, but it can also be the solution to many environmental problems.